0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Hey, everybody. You can uh, turn your Bibles to Chapter 6 or turn your phones to Chapter 6. This is a long passage, so um, I just encourage you guys as as we read through kind of I, I, I like to kind of close my eyes and just try to absorb and, and really focus on what's going on if, if you don't want to read with me. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus feeds the 5,000. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered to him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into this world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat at the la- was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down "'from heaven and gives life to the world. "'They said to him, "'Sir, give us this bread always. "'Jesus said to them, "'I am the bread of life. "'Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. "'Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. "'But I said to you that you have seen me, "'yet do not believe. "'All that the Father gives me will come to me, "'and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. "'For I have come down from heaven, "'not to do my own will, but the will of God who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? "'Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. "'I am the bread of life. "'Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. "'This is the bread that comes down from heaven, "'so that one may eat of it and not die. "'I am the living bread that came down from heaven. "'If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. "'The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh.' "'The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, "'How can this man give us his flesh to eat?' As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, how can you listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks a lot. So in honor of doing the longest chapter in the New Testament, we decided to read it to you. It's good though, isn't it? Isn't it good to have a nice long reading like that and to have it read so well? Um, Really gets you, um, you know, really gives you the perspective of what's going on here. Um, but that was the longest scripture reading we've ever had. And I think the message might be shorter than the scripture reading, which will be perhaps refreshing to you, I don't know. Um, but what, the reason why we do that, the reason why we're taking this whole text, you might think to yourself, especially those who really think about these things, why, why don't we break this up more? You know, Why don't we go verse by verse through here? And the reason why we're not going verse by verse through this particular section is, is we don't want to miss the story. There's something going on here that connects... Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the whole discourse that comes later. And if we broke it up, he'd lose that. And so that's what we're doing here. Um, Let's pray. Father, we just pray, Lord, that we, as we come in, we know completely well that we have worked for all kinds of bread that doesn't satisfy. All kinds of bread that doesn't give us life. Lord, we come in here guilty of that, even this morning, even yesterday, Lord. Um, Even as your people, we're tempted to do that. And we come before you, Lord, and we just ask you, would you change our hearts? Would you change our appetites? Would you give us an appetite for your son, the the true bread from heaven? Lord, we pray that during this Christmas season, as there's so many opportunities to be distracted, Lord, and and yet the the, the thing we shouldn't do is just be bah humbug about it, Lord, but we should pursue you during this time. We pray that this text here would help us to hunger after you during this season. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, what's going on here in the text, I just want to kind of tell you where you are in the story. So, this is, it says that the Passover is just about to occur. This would be the Passover of 32 AD. So, there's three Passovers during Jesus' ministry. We already saw one of them. And so, if you're kind of paying attention, you're like, boy, it seems like we jumped ahead in the timeline, and we did. Six months of Jesus' life has passed since last Sunday. So you might have thought, it feels like we haven't seen each other in a while, you know. It was just a week, but there's a six-month gap in between chapter 5 and chapter 6. And Jesus is drawing these huge crowds. I may imagine it. Here he is out in this field teaching all day, and there's 5,000 people. Actually, there's more than that. That's just the men. It specifically calls the men out, 5,000. There's maybe seven, maybe ten, maybe more. Thousands of people out in this field that want to hear him all day. And so they get to the point where the, the day's uh, getting late, and they, they want to feed him, and and so Jesus tests Philip by saying, "Hey, let's get him some food." And Philip's like, "That's impossible." And then he does this act where he takes five loaves of fish, uh, five loaves of bread, and two fish, and feeds well over five thousand people. Okay, this is an act of special creation. Okay, he created bread. Okay, he created fish in front of them. This is different than. Uh, Jesus turned the water into wine. Remember, nobody knew except to kind of his close people. These guys saw this, and we can see that from their reaction. Take a look at verse 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And then verse 16, perceiving then that they wanted to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And they keep on trying to find him uh, more and more, right? Uh, it says in verse 24 that, that he, he hides, he runs away from him, and they find him. They try and figure out where he is, and the next day they show up on the other side of this sea, on the other side of this lake, pursuing him. They pursued him in boats. And they say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And on the face of this, guys, it seems like Jesus has an amazingly successful ministry, right? He has thousands of people that want to hear. They hang on every word of his. They call him the prophet. They see him as kind of a new Moses that's come to give manna, just like Moses gave manna. They're wanting to make him king. And when he hides from them, they find him. I mean, this is pretty crazy. He's not doing a lot of advertising. He's not, you know, he's not putting up a bunch of signs. He's running from them. And they find him. There's a little boat chase. They get in a boat, and they're they're looking for him, right? And you might think to yourself, Jesus, this is an amazing ministry. You finally hit it. You finally have success. And yet Jesus is going to confront their appetites because they don't have an appetite for him. They have an appetite for what he can give. Take a look at how Jesus responds to the eagerness of these people. Verse 25. These are people that rode to get here to find Jesus. And they say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're kind of like, what are you running away from us for? (laughs) We want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus rebukes them. What's going on here? Why is he rebuking them? Jesus isn't satisfied with mere popularity. He isn't satisfied with having mere religious power. Jesus loves these people far too much to not confront their unbelief. He sees unbelief. And he's not just going to leave it alone so they can continue to grow and and things like that. He's going to confront them. And he he says they didn't see the signs. Now, obviously, they saw him do the miracle, but they didn't see what the sign points to, right? Even the word sign says it points to something, right? This sign was to point to Jesus. They were supposed to find their satisfaction in him, but they don't, right? They're not really believing in him. They say they believe in him, but they don't really believe in him. They don't believe at least in the real Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They want free food. They want the earthly things Jesus can give. And when we talk about this, I think some of you guys are more theological, immediately think of things like the prosperity gospel, right? There's this thing called the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, which is basically that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous in this life. And if you'll do the right things for him and kind of live the right way, then you'll experience all this. He doesn't want anybody to be poor. He doesn't want anybody to be sick. He doesn't want any of those things. Um, and we could look at the Bible, and we could say, well, you know, too bad Job didn't figure it out, you know? Too bad he didn't know how to really follow the Lord, or or Paul, you know? Paul didn't have the best time, you know? Like, maybe it was a lack of faith. No, that's not what was going on there. It's a false teaching. And as easy as it is, guys, to go after the prosperity gospel, you know where the prosperity gospel also relies? Where it also lives? In our hearts. We, too, can be like that. We can follow Jesus just for what he'll give us in this world, right? Right? Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me the career I want. Right? I'll follow you if you'll give me the spouse I want. I'll follow you, Jesus, if you'll give me the kids I want. I'll follow you, Jesus, if you'll give me the health I want. I'll follow you, Jesus, if you'll give me the answers I want. I'll follow you, Jesus, if you give me the financial security I want. I'll follow you, Jesus, if I get the approval of others that I want. And Jesus says to us here in verse 27, take a look at it, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has rested his seal. Um, We guys work so hard for so many things that perish, don't we? We just think about like possessions You know, think about Christmas season. I honestly, like I was praying, I do not think being bah humbug is at all a Christian virtue, okay? I think we should be the most into Christmas of anybody and we should be um, on the offense to take it, not take it back from the culture, but to take it back in our own hearts, you know? To really be the people that are the most excited about the advent and the coming of Christ. But during this Christmas season, we are tempted to think about all the things we don't have, all the things we think we need. You know what Job said about that? He said, naked I've come from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. Isn't that true? Isn't that wild that, that we come in naked, and we leave with nothing, and in the middle, we freak out about not having things? <laughs> we really should think this through, shouldn't we? We really should think, Like okay, I came in with nothing, and I'm totally leaving with nothing. And I'm going to freak out in the middle? It's strange, isn't it? And so possessions are something that we work so hard for things that perish. Um, Popularity is something we work hard for. It perishes. Um, Security, it perishes. All these things will perish eventually. We think of some of the electronics and some of the things we want so desperately to have now. You think about, what do they look like in five years? Trash. That's what they look like. They're in a landfill somewhere. Most of the things we strive for will be in a landfill, right? And, And not only do they perish eventually, but they can all perish in a second. You know, I think we're realizing that this year. We think about the the people that we've lost this year and and the lives that have gone and, and the things that happen, and we just think we could lose everything in a minute. He says, do not strive for the things that perish. Jesus this morning wants to rebuke and refine our appetites. Okay, he wants to say that appetite's not right and let me show you what's really savory. Let me show you what you really want. He wants us to stop striving so hard for things that perish and start feasting on him. Does that sound good? I think that sounds good. I'm like, please do that. That would be great, okay? Okay, and look at how they respond though. He says, don't labor for the things that perish. Go for real bread and all that. And look at how they respond. This is crazy. Keep in mind, this is the day after he did this miracle. Look at verse 30. And they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe in you. What work do you perform? It's like, you were there yesterday, right? <laughs> you were there yesterday, and that they want more. And then listen to what they say. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat. It's as if they're saying like, oh yeah, that's good. Don't, don't strive for the things that perish. You know, don't work for things that perish. Hey, about the bread. You know, could we get some of that sweet manna? You know, it's, it's, and it's scary, guys, isn't it? It's scary that we could be totally excited about Jesus, but not the real Jesus. That's what's going on here. Super excited about Jesus, but it's a Jesus of their imagination. It's a Santa Claus Jesus, right? This is Santa Jesus. I don't know if everybody's ever done that decoration. We looked for, but then eventually I got turned down on, a Yoda Santa, <laughs> which we had neighbors that always had one, and I wanted a big inflatable one, but then I was talked into, like, it is tacky. And uh, so, but I don't know if anybody's in Santa Jesus, but that's what's going on here. We're just after what Jesus can give us in this life. And guys, no one really loves Santa. You realize that? No one wants a relationship with Santa. No one wants to hang out with Santa. No one wants Santa to move in with them, right? What do we want from Santa? His stuff, right? We want gifts from him. And we'll be good, you know, because he's watching, And we'll leave him cookies, but we just want his stuff. And that's what's going on here. It's the same with Jesus with many people. It's the same way they were with him here. Um, And look at what Jesus does. He tells them real plainly in verse 35. He goes, you want bread? He goes, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, guys, I have come not to give bread, but to be bread. I've come not to give bread, but to be bread. And they're offended by this, you know? And we can see in verse 41, the first thing that really offends them is that that Jesus had said that he's bread that's come down from heaven. Look at what they say, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him saying, uh, he says, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? They're like, hey, don't get too full of yourself. You know, you're just our delivery person. Like, you're our source of free bread. Don't start talking about how you're from heaven and all high and mighty and stuff like that, right? You see this? They're not seeing the sign. They don't see who Jesus is. But see what Jesus does? He keeps pushing them. He realizes he's offended them. He keeps going. It's wild. He says he's come down from heaven. They're like, how can you say that? And then he goes, hey, let me tell you something else. You need to eat my flesh. Take a look at verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, no, that the one who eats of it may not die. I am the bread from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give them for my life, for the life of the world, is my flesh. And then a fight breaks out, right? In verse 52, the Jews dispute amongst themselves, and they say, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So he's offending him. He's bothering him. And then what does he do? He makes it worse. Look in verse 53. He says, Oh, yeah, you're going to need to drink my blood, too. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. What's he doing here? Guys, if these people don't have real saving faith, and they don't, and if these people are following Jesus for all the wrong reasons, and they are, it is a loving thing of Jesus to push them like this he's going to push them until they acknowledge that they don't know him and they're not following him. And this is a blessing. Okay, this is a blessing. What's Jesus talking about here? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Certainly one of the difficult passages in Scripture. What's he talking about? What Jesus is not talking about is cannibalism, right? He's not crazy. And at least some of the crowd knows that, right? Because they dispute amongst themselves. What does he mean? There's, there's not a unified idea of what Jesus means here. And guys, realize that these people had listened to Jesus all day long. They know he's not crazy. They know he's not a crazy person. No one could teach like Jesus teaches and be crazy. And, and they've heard him use all kinds of metaphors and figurative language. I mean, you guys have all heard Jesus teach. You know that he uses all kinds of metaphors and figurative language. Guys, if they're not understanding what he's saying, they're choosing not to understand. Okay, These people are offended that Jesus isn't who he wants them to be, and they're looking for reasons to turn their back on him. And so, and, and you know, you got to think too, Jesus is speaking in a Hebrew style that was very typical, full of symbolism. If you look at Psalm 63, it talks about how God's like food, right? If you, if you read Isaiah 55, the invitation for salvation is like an invitation to a feast. And so they're intentionally misunderstanding Jesus. So, what is Jesus talking about here when he talks about his drinking his flesh? and uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Well, the context doesn't leave us to guess. I want you to look at your Bible. Look at two different verses because you can definitely know exactly what he means. Take a look at verse 40. When you find 40, put your finger on that one. And then find verse 54. Verse 54 reads, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, remember that part. Has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day person that eats his flesh and drinks his blood. Now look at verse 40. It says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, look at the end of it, have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. It's the same ending on both verses, right? Okay, So track with me here. Same ending on both verses. He's saying, this is the way of eternal life. This is the way to be raised on the last day. In one verse he says, it's to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And in the other one it is to behold me and believe in me. He's not giving two different ways of salvation here. He's using this as a metaphor. He's saying that believing upon me, beholding me for who I am and believing on me is like eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing there. And it's very clear when you look at those two verses, the second half are identical, so you know that the first halves mean the same thing. So to believe in Jesus is like eating him. And it's a brilliant metaphor, really. I know it's shocking, It's disturbing. It was more disturbing to them. It says in the passage, he said these things in the synagogue. Drink my blood, okay? He's saying the most offensive thing in the most offensive place to say it. But it's a brilliant metaphor because it addresses the problem of the crowd, guys. The problem of the crowd is that they only have a very superficial attachment to Jesus. And he's saying, I don't want you to have that. I want you to take me in, you know? I want you to have me on the inside. He's saying, you seek me, Uh, Not because you saw the signs, but because you were filled with this bread. And then Jesus says, saving faith, guys, is not about consuming my gifts. It's about consuming me. You see that? He's like, don't try and eat all these things that I can give you. Consume me. He goes, I've come to give bread, not to give bread, but to be bread. Isn't that cool? And guys, true saving faith involves a change of our appetites, doesn't it? It's not just that somehow we found out that Jesus gave us the goodies we always wanted. How cool, I'll take him. He changes your appetites. He changes the things you want. He changes your tastes. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about how eating is like believing, right, for a moment. But I have to read to you guys this, this thing I saw on Twitter, okay? So I have this post on Twitter, and listen to this, about eating. Eating's amazing, right? Okay, I'm going to tell you, eating is really amazing, Right? Listen to this Twitter post. I have a fist sized pump inside my chest that runs for 90 years on donuts. And I've got to prove God exists? Give me a break. Isn't that true? Like, you have in your chest a fist sized pump that can run for 90 years on donuts. That's amazing. How does that even work? I know you guys were amazed when you saw the, the second um, Back to the Future, and, he, and he's able to like, put just like garbage into that machine and drive it, right? Like, you can put garbage into you, and it runs. And to be fair, it, you probably can't run 90 years on donuts. You'd probably need coffee, too. But, uh, but that's amazing. How, how does that work? How does food that you put into you do these things? I mean, think about it. So you take some food. You take, you know, let's say you take a donut, right? You put it in your mouth, right? And you chew it. And what happens? Saliva, right? Saliva moistens it so that you can chew it and work with it and bring it down. You know what else happens? There's these enzymes in your saliva, amylase. And you know what they do? They take the starches and they break them down. That's why if you put a piece of bread in your mouth that isn't really sweet, if you wait for a while, it becomes sweet. The carbs are already being broken down into simple sugars, and then what? And then you swallow this, which is a whole amazing thing in and of itself, and it goes down this by peristalsis, down this tube, right, into a vat of hydrochloric acid that is in you. You have a vat of hydrochloric acid pH2. That's crazy, okay? Gets in there, it starts getting dissolved, right? And then you've got other enzymes called pepsin. They they break down pepsin, they break down protein. So they're chopping proteins up, right? And then it moves down to your small intestine. You've got 20 feet of small intestine. And that's as far as I'm going to go. Just to the small intestine. Just so you worry, like, are we doing large colon? We're not going to do any of that, okay? So in the small intestine, guys, there's other enzymes. There's enzymes specific for protein. It's chopping up the proteins, right? There's enzymes that are specific for carbs. And it's breaking those up. There's, there's lipases, which break up the, the fats. And they break up that. And it's all happening in your small intestine. And then you've got these little things, microscopically. Like they're villi. They're like little carpet-like things. And they absorb all this. And they don't absorb like the toxic bacteria that could kill you and things like that. Just the things, the nutrients, the little proteins and fats and carbs. Isn't that amazing? And then it gets absorbed into your portal vein, goes to your liver, liver processes, sends it out to do all kinds of wonderful things in you. Some of these nutrients become power for you, right? The way you were able to walk in here, the way your brain's able to go, like, okay, this is a weird sermon. I'm gonna, I'm trying to take it in. All that your brain uses tons of energy to do things like that. And so things like the sugars and the proteins and the fats that get broken down for energy—that's how that fist-sized pump that never stops can beat for ninety years. That wild. And some of these uh, nutrients actually become parts of you, right? So the proteins are broken down, amino acids, those actually get incorporated into you. This is an amazing thing, guys. If we think about, like, digestion and eating and all this, you can take broccoli, you can feed it to a certain animal, make bacon, eat the bacon, and the bacon can become part of your brain cells. That's amazing. (laughs) Have you ever thought about it? That is amazing. Totally amazing. You are what you eat, right? It actually absorbs into you. It becomes a structural part of you. It's amazing. And so Jesus uses this process as a picture of what it's like to really truly receive him by faith. And there's a couple of ways in which this metaphor works great for the gospel. And one of them is in verse 51, because the first one is, is that everything you eat must die to give you life. You guys realize that? You'd be like, no, I'm a vegetarian. You're killing things. Okay? Plants right? Everything you eat has to die to give you life. It's a beautiful metaphor of the gospel. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Look at what he says. He goes, I will give. I will give my body as bread for the world. It's voluntary, guys. When you read through John, you're not reading through a guy that gets trapped and against his will, put on a cross. He gives his life. He gives his life. And it says, too, for the life of the world, it's substitution. You know, because we've sinned, he has to or desires to give his life for the world. It's, it's, It's voluntary. It's substitution. And notice he says, my flesh is bread. Does that freak you out at all? Just to think about that. He's not offering some labor. He's not offering some words. He's not offering some, some things you know, to give on behalf of you. He is offering his own body as bread. He says he's offering his own body. And I'm just thinking like his wrists, right? On the cross, Jesus Christ offers his physical body to be pierced through the wrists, to be pierced through the feet, to die in agony on the cross. And he's saying in this past year before the cross, he's saying, I give my life, I give my flesh as bread for the world. It's just intense just to think about that, guys. He came to pay our debt. He came to be that bread. And that's the real scandal, guys, because as you read, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you might think, oh, gross, you know, why is he doing this, right? And that was the reaction. Guys, the real scandal, the really gross thing, the thing that's really scandalous is the cross. It's the thing it points to. I mean, we've sanitized it way too much. Um, The cross is about Jesus's body mangled and broken, dying in agony to pay the debt of our sin. We sanitize it, right? That's the real scandal. It was a scandal in the first century. The Jews and Greeks thought when this message came to them, they thought, we can't believe this. This is gross, this is strange, this is you know, repugnant. But guys, it's gross, it's grotesque because our sin's grotesque, right? Our sin had to be dealt with in that way. And how great is the love of Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? This is a real human being. This is God in the flesh, but he's a real human being saying, the bread I will give for the life of the world is this. I'm going to do this in a year. I'm going to have this nailed to the cross. I'm going to do that for you. That's the scandalous and the beautiful thing. And so um, uh, what we eat has to die to give us life. Jesus died to give us life. And then secondly, what we eat becomes a part of us and empowers us. That's another way in which this eating metaphor is so good. Is it You know, whatever we eat has to die to give us life. Jesus died to give us life. But also, whatever we eat can become a part of us and empower us. Look at verse 55. It says, For my flesh, Jesus says, is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, listen to this, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And just like I was talking about those proteins in our food become incorporated in our bodies and become a part of us, what he's saying here is that as we consume Jesus by faith, as we trust in him and believe in him, we actually become united with him. You know, The Bible talks about, mysteriously, we'll talk about things like that we're members of his body. You know, uh, that, that when you come to Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, that you're treated by Jesus as a member of his body, that you're a part of his body. But then it also speaks the other way how uh, Christ is in us. So, like, we're in him, he's in us. What's going on here? It, it's, it's what's going on in verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's about union with Christ. That we become, when we put our faith in Jesus, we become united with him. We, our lives um, become spliced with his life right? Think about some of you guys who have done electrical, you know, you have the two wires, you twist them together, you put the little cap on there, you splice those lives together. That happens when we put our faith in Jesus, that we become bonded to him, united with him, such that his life flows through us. The Bible also talks about in John 15, right, about the branches and the vine, that we are these, you know, these dead branches with no life in ourselves, and Jesus is this healthy, luxuriant vine that has all this fruit, and, and what happened in the cross and what happens when we put our faith in him is a little V kind of got dug out of that, right? Out of that healthy living vine of Christ. And we got kind of wedged in there. And then his life starts to flow through us, right? So we're this dead branch. And, and what happens is Jesus' life starts to flow through us. It becomes green and leaves start and then fruit, you know, starts to pop off. You know, the fruit of the spirit. That's from being infused with his life, And so that's what he's talking about here. Just like food, you know, becomes a part of us. As we truly behold and believe in Christ, we find his life flowing through us. Which is weird when you first experience it, you know, that we find a life coursing through us that's not our life. We start doing things and being the kind of people we've never been before. What is that? That's Jesus' life flowing through us. And some of you guys have experienced that for the first time this year. How fun is that? Right? (laughs) Right? And when you start to experience that, his life flowing through you, it changes your appetite, doesn't it? Changes your appetite. Um, You realize that Jesus is all you need. Like, if I can have this, I don't need any of these things that perish. Changes your appetite. Guys, the goal of discipleship is to live in that reality, isn't it? The goal of discipleship would be to live in that reality where his life is flowing through ours and then our appetite is ruined for the things of the world. So Jesus has come to give bread not to give bread, but to be bread. He's come to rebuke and refine our appetites. He's saying, stop striving for the things that don't satisfy. And, you know, they want this bread that Moses gave. He goes, he goes the manna that Moses gave, it just made people feel good for a day. Right? And that's what materialism will do for us. It'll just make us feel good for a day. Right? Toys get old, don't they? Um, that's what religion will do. It's a placebo. It'll make us feel good for a day. He's saying, stop striving for the bread that perishes and start feasting on me The true bread of life. How great of a message is that? I just (laughs) say, that is a great message. The message we have for people and the message you have for yourself today is stop striving for things that don't give you life. Feast on Jesus. That's the message. You're like, I thought this would be a bummer. It's not. It's an invitation to a feast, right? To believe in him and to savor him. That's the deal. Well, what's the reaction of the crowd? Reaction of the crowd is not good, okay? Um, if it were all about numbers, you'd think, okay, this is major ministry failure time. But Jesus is doing ministry, and it's important ministry that he's doing here, even though it doesn't look good. The crowds start to dissipate, right? They're confused. They're disappointed in him, right? Jesus wasn't going to give them the earthly goodies they wanted, so they're going to walk. And, um, and we've all seen that happen, haven't we? You know? And even some of Jesus' quote-unquote disciples walk away. Look at verse 66. After these, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We've seen that, right? Look at verse 67. And Jesus said to the 12, I love this. Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Isn't that a powerful question? He looks at his 12 and he goes, just tell me straight. You guys want to go away too? You know? And what do they say? I love what they say. You know, I love what Peter says here. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You ever felt like that before? You ever felt like that? You ever been so full of doubts and questions and disappointment and confusion, and yet you say, you're like, I'm done. You know, like, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, And then you just go, you know what, Lord, where else am I going to go? I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're doing. Uh, this, none of this is going the way I intended. Um, I even wonder if there are real answers to many of my questions. And yet, where else am I going to go? Right? I love that Peter doesn't fake it. He doesn't go like, oh, no, no, we get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the, the flesh and the blood thing. Yeah, we're cool with that. And then later they're like, <laughs> what's he talking about? You know? He's honest, right? He's honest with exactly where he is. Why does he stay? Verse 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter knows that Jesus has eternal life and he's the only one that can satisfy his soul. Jesus. Uh, Peter's appetite's been changed, right? By being with Jesus and by truly believing in him, his appetite's been changed. Um, You guys have probably, and this is why the question today, but um, you guys have probably all kind of had, like, a really amazing steak, or just really amazing coffee, or you found just this amazing beer, or you found this amazing dessert, or whatever, right? And and, and you've said to yourself, like, I'm ruined now. Like, I just can't go back to that stuff, you know? (laughs) Some of you guys are like that with coffee. Yeah, chat over here. Like that with coffee, you know? I just can't drink that stuff, you know? And that's the way it is. You've been ruined for it. Guys, Peter's been ruined for the world. <laughs> Once you've tasted Jesus, as confusing and difficult as the life with him is, where are you going to go? You know? The world doesn't taste good anymore. And if, and if you're here today and you are in the midst of your own confusion and doubt and disappointments and you keep holding on to Jesus, it's evidence that you've been ruined for the world too. And guys, you need to realize that, that that's something God did. Right when he ruined you for the world, when he when he made it so you like, I can't do the cheap stuff anymore, <laughs> I can't do the stuff that perishes anymore. Um, that is a supernatural act of God, and I think we need to be encouraged by that. We need to be we need to remember that if you have that appetite, if you have that belief, that is supernatural. That's something God's done. That's something we need to remind ourselves and remind others of. Look at verse thirty-seven. If that's there's all this kind of predestinarian language, all this sovereignty of God language in here and I want to draw that in right now because if you have that appetite, that's an act of God. Take a look at verse 37. All, the Father, all who the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's you, right? And then you read a little bit further. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me. Do you guys realize that if you're in Jesus right now, if you're trusting in him, that you were actually given to Jesus by the Father? So there was this Trinity thing where you specifically were chosen and given to Jesus to take care of. And so just like Peter, the reason why you don't let go of Jesus is because he doesn't let go of you, right? There's no getting out of this, by the way. I don't know if you know. And then he says a little bit further, But I will raise him up on the last day for this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Your future, guys, is secure. Even in the midst of your doubts because a lot of times when you have doubts and disappointments and confusion, you can feel like your future is shaky, right? You can feel like, well, if I have all these doubts, if I have all this confusion, if I'm not totally on board with everything Jesus said and I'm not really sure what to do with some of these things, that somehow your future is shaky. Guys, if your appetite for Jesus is such that there's nowhere else for you to go, your future is secure. Your future is secure because Jesus can make it secure. And I would say to those of you guys that are here today that maybe don't know Christ, um, that happens a lot. A lot of people come, we're glad you're here, that don't know Jesus, that, that if you're you've resonated with things that Jesus has said in here, if you're thinking, yeah, you know what, I am striving for, for bread that doesn't satisfy, I'm striving for things that perish. And as Jesus is saying, like, I'm the true bread, come to me. If, you're, if that resonates with you, if you feel drawn to that, there's good news in this text for you guys. God's drawing you. He's pursuing you. He does that. The dangerous place to be <laughs> with Jesus talking through his word, right? How do you respond to that? Look at verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you're coming to him, that's God. That's God doing that. And I will raise him up on the last day. How do we respond? How do we respond to a God that hunts us down like this? Uh, What do we have to do to receive this bread? I think that's a hugely hugely important question, is how do we receive this bread? Verse 29 is so good on that. I love this. Because when he was first talking to him about the bread, he says, you know, you need to go for bread that doesn't, that that perseveres, not the bread that will just perish. You need the bread that's going to give you eternal life. And they're like, what kind of work do we do to get this bread? Right? They're motivated, Right? At least initially. What kind of work do we do? Look at what 29 says. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The only work that God requires for us to have living bread is to believe. That's the quote unquote work. And then we find out that's a work God did in us. That's all he asked today. Take Jesus as the bread, the true bread today. Let's pray. Father, um, we're thankful that we're thankful that that is the way of salvation because we do not have anything else to offer. <laughs> we, um, we're flighty at best. We, um, we desire things we shouldn't desire. We, our appetites are all over the place. And yet, Lord, you have promised that if we will put our trust in your son, that we have eternal life. And we just thank you for that, Lord. We have no power within ourselves to save ourselves, and yet you provide us a message that requires nothing from us, but that we would trust in you, that we would take the bread, that we'd eat the bread. And I just pray, Lord, for us today, Lord, please continue to refine our appetites. We've not been completely ruined for the world. It still has attractions to us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to change our appetites, that we would have appetites for only you. We pray, Lord, too. I just want to pray for this Christmas season. Uh, I think many of us can feel it already um, that, you know, we're kind of missing what it's about. We just pray, Lord, in this next two weeks, Lord, um, leading up to the time when we celebrate your son coming into the world to be bread for us, to die for us, Lord. We pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise. Thank you for everybody that's here. I pray, Lord, that as they leave, that they will have felt that they have met with the living God. We thank you for your word that does that and your spirit that does that. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covegrace.org slash menifee.